Now, 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 how's this for a podcast? Don't, don't waste your hate. Hosted by Invalid Beard and Tony Rockamora. Hey, what's up, guys? This is Tony Rockamora. Welcome back to Don't Waste Your Hate. Just want to remind you all to subscribe to the show on iTunes and YouTube, uh, Stitcher, any other platform that you can get your hands on. We are on most of them. Um, you could also check us out on BitChute. That is our latest edition. And this is going to be don'twasteyourhate.com slash 40 for the show notes, episode 40. Um, we've been doing video a lot lately, but this is actually a throwback episode that I had in the archives for a while. So it's a little over two months old, had it going back in February of 2018. I just listened back to it. Honestly, I think it is 95% pertinent. When I spoke to one of the guys that was in what you're about to hear, he was concerned it might sound a little stale. I think for the most part, it's still pretty pertinent and current. So anyway, uh, I had a conversation it was facilitated by a friend of mine, and it was myself and a guy named Joey, who calls himself also the Mad Philosopher. And we got into the conversation of the alt-right, kind of the white nationalist, white ethno-state, ethno-nationalist conversation. And this is a guy who we talk about the alt-right um, or, or the libertarian to alt-right pipeline, right? That's been discussed for, you know, many times in the past year or two, I would say. And there is something to it. A lot of people deny that there's nothing to it, but uh, I think this conversation is a pretty good indication that there is something to it. To me, Joey seems like a really smart guy and very well-read, and I don't see him as a guy that you can just cast aside and say, oh, this guy's an idiot. Like, that is not the caricature that people conjure up in their mind of some guy in their basement in the alt-right, like, just spewing hatred for no reason. I think when you're done with this conversation, you're not going to put Joey in that category. He's clearly thought these things through. And he has come to the conclusion that he is essentially uh, of the Austro-Libertarian wing of the alt-right. And I think there are a lot of people like him. Well, I know there are. Whether it's uh, Jared Howe or Christopher Chase Rachels, there's a lot of people who have gone from being a Tom Woods-type Austrian economics-following anarcho-capitalist to a more alt-right Austrian economics anarcho-capitalist. So we decided to have this conversation really just to figure out uh, what the thought process is, how you end up down this road, and where it potentially leads to. Now, you'll notice in the conversation we mentioned Jordan Peterson and the idea that, hey, you need to speak to each other because if you're not speaking to each other, then all that's left is violence. And I do get the sense that Joey does not want some sort of violence. Maybe he does. Honestly, I've this is the only time I ever talked to the guy. Um, it was a you know restrained conversation that we all went into with the agreement that we were gonna not get you know out of control in any type of emotional way, or uh, we were gonna keep it fairly civil. So we did do that, but I really did get the sense that he 
much prefers peaceful solutions as opposed to violent solutions. So that in mind, I do think it's important uh, for people to listen to this conversation because the alt-right pipeline from libertarianism seems to exist for some people. So I think it's best to understand it and, you know, formulate an opinion about it, maybe send us a reply to it, send us an answer to it. I mean, I'd be interested to know what people think about this and if there's any kind of a rebuttal or challenge to the ideas that Joey presents, to conclusions that he draws. Um, if you want to critique me or my friend and our approaches, then you can do that as well. I mean, you can leave the comments on YouTube, leave them on iTunes, rate and review the show. Um, I think having conversations like this, as uncomfortable that it might be for some people, I think it's important. And I think in order to move forward in a peaceful way, people need to be able to communicate what they want and ultimately compromise instead of come to blows. Sometimes I look around and I see all of the advances in technology and medicine and all this other shit that we have. And yet the fact that we as human beings so often come to blows in this modern era really boggles my mind. If you think we're smart enough to reverse some kind of climate change or global warming in an entire planet, then we first need to be smart enough to not kill each other so much. And the first way to do that is by listening to each other and then figuring out something from there that both parties accept, whether it's individuals or collectives. Of course, I prefer the individuals, but either way, conversation is the answer, or at least the route that we should take if we desire the flourishing of the human species. So anyway, now that all those dramatics are out of the way, uh, I hope you enjoy this conversation. Please leave a comment. Let us know how you feel about it. And we'll be back next week with something newer. Without further delay, enjoy. So today I'm joined by two of my uh, of my peeps. <laughs> I have Tony Rockamora, who hosts the Don't Waste Your Hate podcast. And uh, we, we've known each other through the Libertarian Union, which if you haven't heard of it, you should check it out. Lots of good podcasts there. And I'm also joined by Joey, the Mad Philosopher. So today we're going to talk about something that is might get us in some hot water. Uh, we're going to take on a subject that is deemed untouchable by most uh, of, of civil society, especially by anyone that has even even leftward leaning thoughts. They, they do not like this topic. And that is white supremacy, white nationalism, ethno-nationalism, and everything that goes with it. <clears throat> How are you doing today, guys? Very good. I'm doing great. All right. Well, so we'll just start off with, we need to kind of frame the issue a little bit. And so Joey, you're, you're kind of our, our go-to guy. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I've definitely noticed and sensed a rightward movement in your own ideology. So why don't you talk a little bit about that and what, where that came from, and then we'll try and go from there. Hey, sorry. Could I just jump in? Uh, I know um, I, I haven't really known Joey for too long. So if you can kind of just not necessarily start from the 
where you are now, but kind of just uh, maybe a little bit of the evolution, like where you came from, maybe a few years back, and then you know where you're at. I'm glad you said that because I was going to say, well, I'll pick up where I left off on our last conversation. But no, I'll, I'll go back to the beginning and I'll keep it as brief as humanly possible. So I started out my philosophical career when I was very young. When I was seven or eight years old, I read the Nicomachean Ethics by Aristotle and he blew my mind. I was like, hey, this guy knows how the world works and how people work and I'm a big fan. And in a few short philosophical steps, just reading different books that people were like, hey, it's a philosophy book. And I'm a young, naive, you know, uh, junior high kid, uh, 12, 13, around that age, I come across Karl Marx. And uh, I fell for Karl Marx hard. He fit in very well with my understanding of the Aristotelian tradition. Um, so I kind of blame Aristotle and his Nicomachean ethics for my stint as a devout communist. Um, through reading uh, various uh, Frankfurt School authors and, and just uh, Marx himself, and then his immediate inheritors such as Trotsky, I became a hardcore Trotskyite Marxist, a very specific, narrow um, band of, of Marxism. And this whole process was a matter of seeking verisimilitude, looking for things that looked like the truth. Um, so if you're, if you're operating off of Aristotelian priors, the logical conclusion is a form of Trotskyism. Then while I was in high school, late high school, I was rereading Aristotle and started finding some problems I had with his premises, which through exploring those through my college career and learning some economics um, by accident, somebody made me read Hans Hermann Hoppe. And in a few short order, or a few short books, I'm reading Human Action, I'm rereading Democracy, the God that Failed. And through learning economics, it, it totally destroyed my understanding of how human action operates, destroyed my view of Marxism. And for a while, I was kind of wandering in a philosophical ether. At uh, this time, I'm about 22 years old. I'm suffering a bout of depression. And I turn to my wife one day and I say, I think I might be an anarchist. And she's like, okay, what does that mean? And I go, I'm not sure. I'll get back to you on that. So I think about it for a few months and I'm like, well, the definition of anarchy, you know, no rulers, no archons. Okay, I get it. And that's basically where I was at. I had a disbelief in authority. And through exploring my disbelief in authority, eventually I came around to anarcho-capitalism. I was late to um, embrace that branding, but the reason I embraced the branding is I was like, well, no, that pretty much matches my ideology. I guess I'd have to own what I am if the shoe fits, so to speak. Um, and then through exploring a lot of the logical issues presented in anarcho-capitalist debate. So again, the same idea, arguing with Marxists led me down this rabbit hole to a very specific brand of Trotskyism. Um, arguing with anarcho-capitalists led me down this rabbit hole down to a very specific brand of Austro-libertarianism, a very Hoppian, far-right-wing cultural movement. So when Trump announces his uh, candidacy to run for president, I'm a committed non-voter, um, but I'm open to the possibility of voting as a legitimate uh, social practice. And through a lot of debate and a lot of just interior um, dialogue come to the conclusion that I think I am going to vote. I'm going to vote for Trump for cultural reasons. 
primarily because it makes my political opponents cry. Um, and that I think was probably the big turning point where when the alt-right, which was something that I was already passingly familiar with before the Trump phenomena, um, watching that cultural um, trend emerge along the alt-right, I participated insofar as I was interested in the ideas. And again, that quest for verisimilitude has continued to lead me down this specific Austro-Libertarian route into what amounts to a libertarianism alt-right hybrid. Basically, libertarians that are now on the alt-right. It's a very specific subset of a very broad landscape. So that's the fastest I could get through my autobiography. Sorry for the long talk. No, 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 that's good. Um... I think maybe uh, something good would would be to just kind of start asking questions of each other and 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 I'll start and and we can whoever wants to to answer we can answer and and my question is is where where does white supremacy and and white nationalism where do these things come from and do they do they have any value like did they did they have any value at the time when they were created do you want to take that one first, Tony, or should I take it? Uh, well, you know, I'm not I'm not too familiar with the you know the history, so maybe you can let us know where, where you think it comes from, I guess, and then I'll, I can respond. That's fine. Okay, um, I think I want to run down some definitions really quick. Again, philosophy is my sure. thing, and definitions are important. So, if we're going to say white supremacy, I would imagine that that is a belief that the white race, so to speak, is superior to other races uh, writ large on on the aggregate, averages, and all that. Um, I'd say that like white nationalism is the committed belief that whites should have their own. Uh, cultural and possibly even political identity. And then ethno-nationalism would be a more uh, categorical universal belief that different races or different ethnicities should have the ability to maintain their own individual cultures. So kind of given that breakdown, I'd say that the idea of white supremacy has probably existed as long as white people have existed, because traditionally, the tribe that you're a part of is human, and everybody outside of that tribe is something slightly less than human, just on a historical um, big picture. You know, when you look 1,000, 10,000, 15,000 years ago and whatever uh, histories we have of different people, the word for human is often the same word as the people who are in my in-group. So like Israelites are human, and then everybody else is something outside of Israelites. You know, you have that divide. Um, so then as a politically or as a philosophically defined and explicit belief, I'd say white supremacy is probably a very new idea. I'd argue that it came out of the Frankfurt School. So it's only a century or two old to begin with. Um, as far as its utility goes, I, I think as as a weapon, as an invective, you know, terms like racist and sexist and things like that definitely have a rhetorical edge to them that you can use to your advantage for good or for ill. Um, but philosophically, I think the problem is um, very weak on its face because supremacy is a value judgment and and value is subjective. We know this from uh, early Austrian thinkers. So given the value is subjective, then the idea of supremacy has to go right out the window along with that subjective declaration. You know, whites could be supreme if my value set is pale skin, 
for example. Right. <laughs> but if I have a thing for tan skin, then there's no such thing as white supremacy, right? So it becomes very subjective and it, it kind of falls apart as a, a philosophical belief structure. That's where the white nationalism and ethno-national become much more um, philosophically uh, rigorous, I guess would be the best way to put it. Yeah, that kind of goes in line with what I was reading. I, I didn't deep, uh, delve deeply into it, but I read through some uh, Wikipedia articles and a few of the source articles about the history of it. And, and it is, as you say, that the idea of differences in the races of people is very old, but then the idea of you know white supremacy or even whites as a generalized term uh, is really only a couple of hundred years old. And before that, you know, there, <clears throat> the all the different uh, cultural groups of the uh, of white people were kind of their own thing. You know, you had the Irish and the Polish and the Italians, and all of these were their own racial identities and groups. And it hasn't been until recently that it's all been aggregated as a part. And so that led me to believe, and I don't know that this is true, but I really think that you know the idea of white supremacy kind of was in reaction to. A, a a countervailing viewpoint of the idea that white people just because they're white have certain privileges and, and you know that that kind of idea really started uh you know in the 1960s with the civil rights movement and things like that i think by and large that's a fair assessment so Tony, do you want to weigh in on on this uh, starting out with the definitions and, you know, where everybody's coming from in this conversation? Yeah, well, I I don't really have much to add, except that I don't think um, I I think it's all pretty much like a a relative term. Like you, you I think you still have these distinctions between, say, the Polish and the Italians. I think, you know, maybe if you're from a totally different part of the world, you might talk about white people. But I think white people, by and large still have these regional identities in a, in a fairly strong way. Um, I mean, to, to varying degrees. And I would say the European Union is kind of trying to dissolve that um, at a fast pace. But I don't think the the uh, classification as, you know, white people is necessarily um, the only, like the prevailing classification, you know, ex- unless you're looking at it from, like I said, from an outside perspective, as opposed to, you know, a more localized perspective. I think that is a fair point as well. I was, I was expecting that to come up later in the conversation, so I'm glad we made it explicit right out of the gate. Well, so so Joey, I mean, I kind of have you on here to to kind of give us the idea of why why you came to these ideas, you know, and what made the shift. I know, I you know, you you mentioned it briefly in your uh, introduction about how how this came to be. But I, I mean, my own personal observation is that there's definitely been an acceleration in, in your uh, it, it, in the in the change in your viewpoint. And, you know, a lot of it may just be provocateur. You know, you, you want to get a reaction out of people. But, you know, I think some of it is probably sincere, too. And so I just wanted to, you know, let you in your own words, tell, tell us how that came about and what the reasoning for that is. So I think when reading Aristotle, I'm looking at the world from this perspective of, I'm assuming this is the way things are, right? Uh, When you're seven years old, you don't have a whole lot of experience and you're reading some old dead guy from 2000 years ago. It's like, this guy sounds like he's got it all together. So he must just know how the world works and I don't. 
Um, going into Karl Marx, then I was at a stage in my life where there are some forms of discomfort that are a little more existential than what a seven-year-old tends to address, right? A seven-year-old, I'm hungry, I'm cold, I don't want to go to school. You know, the the usual surface level um, problems for most seven-year-olds. By the time you're 11, 12, 13, you're starting to get a little bit of identity crisis. A little bit of nihilism starts creeping into your reality. You become aware of your own mortality. There's a lot of problems that emerge. And so when you're coming into Marx at that angle, you're looking at the world like there's problems in the world because I'm unhappy with the world. How do we fix that? And Marx says, you know, we, we need a revolution of the proletariat, uh, you know, socialize the means of production, um, have a community of women, you know, all the sorts of things that you can do and that'll make the world better. And so it's like, oh, this sounds great. We have a way to fix the world. And this is operating off of the assumption that Aristotle was right about the way the world works. So then when you discover Aristotle and Marx had flawed premises, for example, the action axiom and all the derivative um, axioms that come therein, the corollaries to those axioms, Austrian economics, basically, um, you have to re-diagnose all of the problems. You can identify a problem, right? There's poor people dying in the streets, or you know, I'm being forced to do something I don't want to do, or any number of different things. And you can look at history and say, well, there's mass genocides every couple of generations, like what's going on? And so you can look at these problems and start to try to diagnose them again. And the Austro-Libertarian um, approach to the Austrian school of economics begins to use the tools of praxeology to explain certain social phenomena that the Austrian school of economics itself does not necessarily address. And so that's kind of my shift from the what what I call the autistic ancap position where you know I can I can list off all these different rules about economics and you can say well if we did this what would happen and I can look at the incentive structures and say odds are the price of whatever would go up or would go down freedom would generally become more available or less available and that's about the extent of the conversation I can have right voting is violence because the state's going to execute on that vote provided your vote counts, which is a big assumption to make. Um, you know, borders are a state-run function, so we have to have open borders because that's closer to the idea of having no borders as opposed to closed borders, right? So these are anarcho-capitalist positions that you can get from trying to approximate a free market in a state-run society. Um, what the Austro-Libertarians do is they look at uh, a more fundamental operating system, things such as biology, right? The thing that made me who I am is 150,000 years of selective breeding. It's 150,000 years of uh, uh, external forces acting on my ancestors, right? They were selected by their environment. Um, and as a result of that, I am likely to have a different disposition towards things than somebody whose ancestry comes from the entire opposite side of the planet. One of the examples of this is in-group preference. And this is, this is where it ties to the Austro-Libertarian thing, where if you're reading Democracy, the God that Failed, Hoppe goes into this uh, kind of 
tangent almost, talking about the economic incentives that play out with regards to marriage and cosmopolitan societies. It'll say that by and large, people like to hang out with like people. So you're going to end up with European communities that are full of Europeans that are from the same specific region of Europe, except for people that live, say, in a port city, where you have people coming in from other nations, they're bringing their wares, they're buying and selling and trading, doing the Misesian thing, uh, very Chicago school, a lot of economic type stuff going on there. And then only the most wealthy of those people could afford the social stigma of accepting a bride from another nation. And so you have the wealthy that can get into um, exoticism as far as mate selection and stuff, but people living the quote unquote middle-class lifestyle in those towns would still kind of be beholden to these social norms that developed culturally over generations that developed possibly even genetically over the course of several hundreds of generations. And that was kind of my inroad into this discussion of uh, what amounts to a discussion of race, um, IQ, all these more controversial subjects. Um, Because there's different incentive structures that play out in different ways when you're talking about higher versus lower IQ individuals, the ability to conceptualize an abstract future, right? Um, When we're talking about, I'm going to finish this up really quick. Um, So when we're talking about uh, the action axiom and we're talking about you have a discomfort, you have an imagined solution to the discomfort and a reasonable belief that this action will result in the alleviation of the discomfort through achieving that goal that you've imagined. The longer you're able to extend that time horizon, the further out you're able to trace all these different causal reactions, the Um, lower your time preference is likely to be, which requires a certain level of intelligence, right? I wouldn't expect my seven-year-old to be able to plan out their IRA the same way that I would be able to plan out my retirement, as opposed to the way that I would expect my dad to be able to plan out his retirement. They're, They're different levels of intelligence and experience that allow one to extend that time horizon. And so if we start talking about cultures, we can see the way that different cultural phenomena match different levels of time preference, which is likely tied to IQ, which I would argue from a um, kind of materialist standpoint is tied to genetics, which comes from evolution and Darwinism and all that kind of mess. So that's, I'm I'm done talking. (laughs) (laughs) Tony, do you want to respond? Um, No, I mean, I I think I I had pretty much surmised that that was kind of the viewpoint uh, or at least like the kind of the the road that you you w- would have taken now maybe we should just talk about the alt-right in general for a minute like okay so we have i, I based on what you just said there's obviously different factions in there i'm assuming uh you kind of would align yourself with something like a jared howe type guy or, uh, yeah, we're. I would like to say Jared and Jared Howe and I are fairly tight. Um, I w- would expect him to reciprocate that claim. Okay, okay. So now, w- I got. I, I just am trying to get the landscape here. So, as far as that, what what percentage kind of would you say of the alt right you your your group kind of consists of? You know, versus you know, kind of uh, the Richard Spencer types, or you know, even more extremist types. I guess. 
that's an excellent question. And it's one that um, I, I actually have a kind of client-based subscription model. And a lot of my clients that I consult with ask similar questions. And I've been trying to find a way to get what amounts to a census of the alt-right. And I haven't been successful. So that's the caveat on what I'm about to say. I think that the alt-right is a very broad landscape with a lot of different ideologies contained therein. I would say of the sort of disaffected libertarian crowd, which is still a pretty big tent that could have a finer point put on it, um, I'd say makes up probably about 25%, 30% of the alt-right as a total landscape. I do, however, think that they're some of the most vocal people in the that sort of alt-right nation, at least as far as the internet is concerned. Gotcha. Now, have you guys have, uh, I mean, is there a lot of discourse between the factions? You know, are, are you guys talking to the Richard Spencer's people or, you know, are, are there productive conversations happening? And For sure. Um, that's actually one of the big things that's attracted me to the alt-right is even in the anarchist circles that I was in, the anarcho-capitalist circles that I was in, there were certain subjects that you weren't allowed to discuss, period, full stop. Um Borders was actually one of those things for a while, and then somehow that became something you could discuss for a while, and then it became something you couldn't discuss again once the alt-right became its own identity for libertarians to kind of move into. Um, however, on the alt-right, just about anything, as extreme as it might be, is open to public debate. And for a philosopher, that's something that's very appealing. So kind of as a subjective measure, I, I find that... Um, superior, if you will, to other uh, political ideologies one might adhere to. Um, as as far as the interoperability or inter-camp discussion inside the alt-right, you can actually go on YouTube and of the videos that haven't been removed for violating the kind of vaguely defined terms of service on YouTube, you can find four hour debates between like Sargon of Akkad, Richard Spencer. Um, they, they even have, um, uh, I just forgot his name, the former grand wizard of the KKK. Um, David Duke. David Duke. You even have David Duke engaging in these conversations, um, and you have people like Jared Howe and Chris Cantwell and and other libertarian alt right figures having these debates with these big name people. Now, as the alt right has become more clearly defined, some of those channels have kind of locked down. There are certain uh, celebrities within the alt right that I think are intimidated by other celebrities from the alt-right and will refuse to engage in dialogue because they don't want to lose their share of uh, popularity within the movement. But this is a new phenomena as far as I can tell. Yeah. I mean, the alt-right in general is, is what, like a, you said it's a little bit pre-Trump, I guess, right? What, like 2015, 2014 kind of thing or a little bit earlier? Um, I would say that the earliest I became aware of the alt-right as such was probably about, um, yeah, the the end of 2015, the beginning of 2016. So it is a fairly early, um, it, it's still pretty new, I guess. Now, certain elements of the alt-right have been around for forever. You've got neo-Nazis, you've got traditional worker party, you, you've got... Um, libertarians that were around before Ron Paul became super, super popular, um, you know, like 2008-ish. Um, but 
as the alt-right, as a collective entity, I'd say it's probably three years old at most. I guess um, I just get the sense, now this is from not exposing myself too much. I mean, I I did listen to uh, some of the shows that you um, suggested, and I've kind of been checking out some of the blogs, etc. And I I, I think we both have some, some things that we do kind of share as far as uh, Tom Woods, Stefan Molyneux, those kind of guys. I, I followed them already. So I uh, I know a lot about the IQ stuff, um, at least surface level. But I get the sense that this thing that's the alt-right, the different factions seem to have, I mean, at least according to the way I would see it, more that divide them than what would unite them. You know, I mean, it just seems like the only thing uniting it is this idea of an in-group preference. That's not an unfair assessment. Um, I, I think if you were to summarize all of the activities and beliefs of the alt-right in one sentence, it would be never punch right. <laughs> so if, in theory, you could take every political or philosophical belief and put it on a simple left-right spectrum and plot out all their different locations along that line, anybody who's to the right of you on that line is off limits. You can't punch them. You you can't tell them they're wrong. You can't counter signal them. Um, And anybody to the left of you, you can correct them as much as you want. And so given that position and ignoring the subjectivity of definition as far as left and right are concerned, I I think you are right that this huge chunk of people that call themselves alt-right are simply united in the belief that anything further right of me is perfectly acceptable. Anything further left of me needs to get on board with my program at a minimum. Um, And so it's kind of, I, I, refer to Tom Woods often as offensively inoffensive. <laughs> um, he he is so good at defining these certain academic, very Austrian principles and discussing things in a very um, dignified and professional way. But there are certain subjects that he refuses to touch. And when I started using this term, it was actually in reference to when he had... Um, I just forgot his name again, Garrett or no. Gottfried, um, Paul Gottfried. Yeah, Paul Gottfried. Um, when he had P- Paul Gottfried on to discuss Charlottesville. And it's like, you got somebody who nobody on the alt-right is a fan of um, to be the spokesman for the alt-right regarding Charlottesville because whether Tom Woods will acknowledge it or not, he is totally aware of Um, how the alt-right feels about, say, the Jewish question. And he brings on somebody who is a stereotypical Jew to be the representative of the alt-right on his program, I think, to intentionally distance himself from the group um, on a bunch of different kind of very smart levels. Um, And that's when I started referring to him as offensively inoffensive. It's like he is so inoffensive that he's actually left of what I would find tolerable in the current discourse. My goal is to move the Overton window far enough right that Tom Woods is just outside the Overton window to the left. <laughs> yeah, that, that that's a that's a, uh, a job I would say, uh, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> um, well, I I think I remember that episode. Uh, I don't think he was characterizing Gottfried as a representative of the alt right. I think he made it pretty clear that yeah, these guys disavow you. 
even though you are kind of like the progenitor of a lot of the ideas, uh, the paleoconservative ideas. I think he, I, I don't think he was uh, pretending like Gottfried is like a, some kind of poster boy for the alt right. Yeah, I think I probably got lazy and, and misspoke, but yes, you're you're absolutely right. <laughs> So, you know, we we're talking about the, the race and IQ thing, and this is something that comes up a lot <clears throat> when we're talking about white nationalism, because I think there's an idea that white, white supremacy or white nationalism is about the idea that whites are smarter than everyone else or smarter than, you know, people of color or however you want to define the groups. And but here's something really interesting that I saw, and that is. There is a there was a high school science fair project. I don't know if you guys saw this, but uh, at a I think it was somewhere in California, right? Yeah, Sacramento C.K. McClatchy High School. Uh, so someone did a high school science experiment for the science fair, where they gave a bunch of students age 15 to 16 IQ tests and then uh, and then reported the results as proving the hypothesis that the reason why uh, black Southeast Asians and Hispanics are are disproportionately uh, underrepresented in in STEM and they they say HISP which is you know this this the higher level academics is simply because that a, a, as a generalization their uh, IQs are lower and and so I, I don't know exactly what to make of this do you guys uh, want to comment on that at all I can't comment too knowledgeably on the actual article as I haven't read it but I definitely saw the headline creep through on Facebook and Discord several times um I I do think that 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 assumption is well-grounded from an a priori standpoint and that with sufficient non-biased empirical study, we could find a direct causal link between IQ and participation in STEM fields, uh, ignoring any sort of bell curve arguments about different races and, and genders and stuff like that, and just focusing on IQs of individuals. Then once you introduce possible bell curve-esque uh, disparities in IQ across demographics on the aggregate, then you can establish, well, there's a reason why there are, you know, fewer women scientists or fewer black doctors or whatever, um, ignoring affirmative action cases. Well, and so my, you know, we were talking about this the other day, which was one of the things that started me wanting to do this podcast <clears throat> was talking about where that comes from. And, you know, we were we were exploring the idea that perhaps the problem of a, you know, a, a overall uh, in general lower IQ score among, you know, blacks and Hispanics and whatnot uh, may be not just genetic, but also environmental and that it's becoming self-perpetuating because of the cultural situation that they're being put in. And, and that the, you know, pro, you know, the BLM type multicultural diversity types are actually doing all of them a disservice by kind of telling them that that's okay, that, that, that's not, you know, that's not reality. 
that it, you know, it's all, uh, you know, whatever systemic racism and white supremacy that's causing these problems. What, what do you guys think about that? I'm sorry, my phone just started vibrating. I, I, I missed a little bit of what you said there. But as far as um, just the, I guess, I, I think this whole IQ thing is important to look at. I'm not one of those people who is going to be pretending that, um, you know, there's no use in doing this kind of study. But I, th- I think at the same time, it's really hard to come come to some kind of a definitive conclusion because there are so many variables at, at hand, I mean, uh, to look at. You know, you, you can easily just say, okay, yes, the bell curve, we know the whole, the whole bell curve thing that, you know, uh, blacks have, I think, a, a standard deviation, less average IQ than whites. I think it's something to that effect, whatever it is. But, but obviously, there are environmental factors, there are uh, economic fa- socioeconomic factors, that kind of stuff. So I, I tend to have a hard time really believing conclusions in either direction, because I think there's just so many variables at, at stake there. So uh, I guess that's, that's just kind of my, my feeling on it. I, at the same time, I think it's certainly worth looking into. And one thing that I, I kind of sympathize with you, Joey, is I'm in a lot of ANCAP groups as well, and I definitely see that there are some people who are willing to bring it up. And then there are other people who will just attack you um, when it's even mentioned, you know, and, and I just think that's just not intellectually rigorous at all. And it, it just doesn't make sense to me why, why you can't have a conversation about those certain things. Now, what conclusions are drawn from it? You know, I, I'm not so sure where I stand on it. I don't think there's really been enough research into it from what I could tell. But, you know, it's certainly something I have no problem talking about. Which is why you're on this episode of of this particular show. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I guess I want to get into a really quick a priori case and see what you guys can uh, tease apart out of it because this is this is an issue that I'm currently grappling with on on a philosophical level. So I'm not hard and fast on this one. But the idea is ignoring the possibility of, or I guess bracketing the possibility of some sort of supernatural egalitarian element. For instance, all humans have a soul and all souls are essentially equal, et cetera, just assuming on a base animal level, looking at humans as material creatures. Um, the, the analogy I would draw would be that genetics, DNA, um, your 42 or whatever chromosomes, um, effectively define the parameters of what's biologically possible for you, right? I'm not going to sprout wings and fly because I simply lack wing DNA. Um, however, given my ancestry, I do have a disposition towards things like celiac disease and, um, uh, Hashimoto's syndrome and, uh, Ehlers-Danlos, right? All these different syndromes and, and diseases that are genetic in nature. Um, however, I just got tested for celiacs and I passed the test. All that does is tell me that I don't have the symptoms of a particular disease. The same way I could go get a diabetes test and it would probably tell me I don't have diabetes. However, those genetic sequences probably exist inside me right now. And if I were to have just a sugar binge for the next two years, I'd be likely to develop diabetes. If I were to undergo a sufficiently stressful enough circumstance, I may develop an autoimmune disorder such as celiacs or Hashimoto's based on whatever my actual uh, genotype may be. Um, So 
given that my organs and my skin color and everything like that is pretty much genetically determined within a parameter. I could go out and get a tan. I could read lots of books and eat lots of nutritional food and get a big brain and all that. Or I could eat Twinkies and hide in a cave somewhere and become pale and stupid. Um, but that kind of parameter is determined genetically. So that's kind of the nature portion of that argument. Then from a nurture side, there's certainly environmental features. Like I said, if I go out in the sun, I'll get tan or red in my case. Um, or I could hide in a cave and just become the most pale, translucent white you could possibly imagine. Been there, done that. Um, then at the same time, IQ, uh, diabetes, sickle cell anemia, whatever, for any different uh, person of different ancestry. So from the goal of elevating as many people out of poverty, increasing the quality of life for everyone as best as possible, there are certain environmental factors that can be addressed in a lot of different ways. However, there are certain genetic limitations that I do think effectively de uh, describe a causal um, link to phenomena like the bell curve. So we could push standard deviations around a little bit, but a standard deviation is statistically significant in a way that I think you would have to alter genetics in order to accomplish a more dramatic shift, which also isn't outside the realm of possibility. I mean, there's mixed race couples everywhere throughout history. Like that's, that's a possibility. <laughs> yeah. And, and the idea is basically, it's kind of that yeah, you could you can only change someone so much in one in one generation. Whereas if um, if people say kept uh, eating nutritious diets, reading a lot of books over generations, 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 and they kept breeding with people who were doing likewise, then over time the um, the average IQ would would go up, and you know ostensibly that would be a more um, uh, permanent change, something like that, right? Uh, possibly. The, the thing that's interesting about genetics is the selective forces that choose over generations. So for instance, if I were genetically determined to be between say 95 and 105 IQ, kind of as my possible range, and I do everything I can to get a big brain, basically, um, I, I push that threshold up to 105. My children are still going to inherit the same DNA that I have, uh, you know, including whatever my spouse includes into that that mix. So assuming she's in that same parameter, barring mutation, there's no selective force that's going to push us higher or lower in that spectrum. Um, what would be required would either to be the introduction of new genetic material from outside or extreme selective pressures that would eliminate a higher or lower IQ uh, section of the population from the gene pool, thereby forcing an evolutionary move up or down in that process. Um, over the course of you know, hundreds of thousands of years, you can do that environmentally very gracefully. But if we're talking just a few generations, it would require a mass extinction event in order to push genetics one way or another. Yeah, I was talking more of a longer term thing, uh, not yeah. just a couple. As long as there's environmental or sociological um, forces pushing a higher IQ, you know, then higher IQ mates would be deemed more attractive. You would be more likely to have high IQ mates pairing with high IQ mates, and that would have a eugenic effect on society or dysgenic if you're looking at lower IQ, assuming high IQ is valuable. And yeah. so the idea for the Europeans. Um, having a higher IQ than a lot of other groups is basically that 
due to the fact that they were dealing with a colder environment, they had to plan further into the future. They had to have a lower time preference, basically. And that over, you know, thousands and thousands of years selected for a higher IQ. Um, that's the basic argument, right? Yeah, the the families and towns that couldn't plan far enough ahead to not eat the seed crop are the families and towns that died off. And the families and towns that were better able to prepare for next planting season are the ones that survived better. And that's, that's a very strict evolutionary uh, selection process, as opposed to, you know, other more ephemeral things like attractiveness of mates. You know, I wanted to bring up here, we were talking about, you, you, you mentioned that it would take uh, an extreme selective pressure in order to change that within a few generations. And, you know, sidestepping the idea that maybe, you know, people before colonization of America, you know, had their own differences, which they did. But then after the colonization of America, especially with respect to the the blacks and the Native Americans in America, they had a very strong uh, selective pressure on them. And that was the dominant European culture. And so I wonder if the current situation that these groups are in right now may be in fact a direct result of the selective pressures that their ancestors were under, you know, and I, uh, to be explicit, I mean like slavery, you know, the smartest slaves are not the slaves that procreated, right? <laughs> it, it depends on the specific slaves, but yeah, I think as a general rule, dumber slaves were at least allowed to procreate more than the smart slaves were. Yeah. And, and so I think that you know, I don't, you know, and I'm just bringing these up. I'm not someone that I'm trying to say that, that white whites are better than blacks or vice versa, or that one group is necessarily better than the other. And I think Joey, you brought this up to me the uh, last time we were talking that when you're talking about comparisons, you have to say compared to what, you know? And so when we're talking about white supremacy, I, I feel like the, the point that's valid about it is the idea insofar that white supremacy and Western culture are kind of together, those in that respect, you know, I think that Western culture is, is superior to, to these other, you know, Marxist counterculture to Western culture. And then also like a, like a native, you know, African or, or, or uh, South American culture, you know, and not not because those cultures don't have value, but just we we in the West, we have made the individual the supreme person. And that has allowed us to be a lot more dynamic in the way that our culture is evolving over time. There's actually a lot in there to to kind of unpack. So I'm trying to just select which thing I, I would like to go after. Tony, if you have a preference, I'd like to go wherever you want to go with that. You know, I'm not really sure. I had a kind of another line of thinking I was going to go on, but I think I want to hear your response first. Okay. Um, I, I do definitely assert that by and large culture, just like everything else would be downstream from genetics. And so when we talk about European culture, we're by and large talking about a phenomena that's emerged from this quote unquote white um, race, right? Or we're talking about Europeans, Europeans created European culture. Um, there's a reason that nowhere else in the world do you get European culture. The same thing happens to be the case for Pacific Islander, um, 
culture. You don't see that evolve anywhere else in the world. It's specific and insular, no pun intended, uh, to that uh, demographic. African culture is the same thing. You can find some similarities, right? You'll find pyramids all over the planet and people will say, oh, it's aliens. It's some overarching dominant culture that used to exist, no longer exists. Or it could just be that pyramids are the easiest way to build a tall structure, right? Yeah. When you're not building skyscrapers with steel and, and uh, you know, bendy metals that can sway in the wind, a pyramid is pretty damn stable. Um, so th there are things that you can point to. Spears are kind of universal in everybody's caveman era. Um, different demographics may have grown out of spears faster than others, but spears are very useful tools. It's a pointy stick. It limits the amount of energy you need to expend to get inside another creature. It makes sense. Um, but then any of the other more um, ephemeral cultural hallmarks are definitely region specific and even race specific. Again, given that the races come from different specific regions in the world. Um, as far as the supremacy case goes, looking at European culture, yes, we as European uh, descendants, uh, us white people, if you will, um, look at things like individualism as a value. We look at things like reducing infant mortality as a um, value. We, we look at um, trust in society as a value. These, these different things then are bolstered by European culture. It, it or Western culture, it, it develops a feedback loop, right? The more we value trust in a society, the more things, um, the more things tend towards incentivizing trustful behavior and disincentivizing distrustful behavior, etc. Um, so yes, to a European, I think by and large, the default setting would be a European supremacy. However, in the East and some very developed cultures, uh, Japan, China, um, even you know Russia has a more uh, culture-facing or more society-facing disposition. They value the social unit over that of the individual. And that produces a culture that values a social unit over an individual to the point that communism may be um, looked upon as valuable in a way that certain other areas in the world, it might be less uh, appealing. That doesn't mean that communism is the end result of this evolutionary process, but it is to point out that to an East Asian, um, individualism is not necessarily a value and therefore European culture is not necessarily supreme. I'm not becoming a tactical nihilist here and trying to <laughs> disintegrate these different ideas, but merely to point out again that value is subjective. Um, but I would say that by default, most people are a in-group supremacist. Whatever my in-group is, we're better than everyone else because we're the in-group. Um, ignoring the possibility of you know our case selection theory and stuff, which we don't have to get into today, but some people might have a stronger out-group preference than others. Well, that that's a really good point that you bring up. And I wonder how, how is it that it seems like, you know, the the postmodernist uh, cultural Marxist types that are white, white liberals, <laughs> how, how come they are the ones that seem to be leading the charge against Western culture, which was the very thing that birthed their entire existence? Like they could not exist without Western culture and they're just like attacking it. <laughs> 
before I answer that question, I have to ask how edgy you want this episode to be. Just go go for the limit. <laughs> I, I would say that there is a very particular ethnic demographic that is disproportionately represented in the cultural Marxists, Marxists writ large, and individuals in Europe and elsewhere with a with what appears to be a strong outgroup preference. Um, there are a lot of stereotypes about this. A particular demographic, some of which I think are warranted, some of which I think are, you know, tales of witch hunts and stuff that aren't necessarily as true, old wives tales, if you will. Um, of course, I'm I'm talking about the Jewish question. And yeah, I, I want to preface it with I'm not a neo-Nazi. I don't want to round up all the Jews and put them in gas chambers and anything like that. No. However, this is a statistical phenomena that cannot be ignored if we're going to dis discuss things like cultural Marxism and attempt to maintain intellectual honesty. So uh, that's kind of my answer just out of the gate is there's a specific demographic that we'd have to kind of um, look at a lot of different features that may or may not be evolutionary in nature or cultural in nature before we can even start talking about the relationship between cultural Marxism and European culture writ large. Yeah, but there's a lot of, uh, I guess, for lack of a better word, SJWs out there. I mean, and there's not that many Jews out there, you know. So are you are you talking about the being at the forefront of an intellectual movement, um, or are you talking about just the group in general is kind of the majority of them, of SJWs? I mean, a little bit of both. Um, I, I I'm trying to avoid the discussion of Naxalt, but and it, uh, that's for. Listeners, that's not all X are like that. You know, it's the statistical outliers. You can't yeah. point to that as an example of a demographic. Um, but looking at social justice warriors, what percentage of society writ large, you know, we have 350 million Americans or whatever. In America, how many SJWs do we have? Then of those SJWs, what percentage of them are this particular demographic? How does that relate to the broader demographic of American culture, for example? The case that I want to make is that even though uh, Jews are represented by a very, very small minority of the general population, most, uh, especially at the forefront, so forefront, most of the big name SJWs, uh, their, their names come from a certain demographic background. If they took a 23andMe, they would have um, a significant portion of uh, Ashkenazi or uh, Semitic descent in their, in their makeup on a 23andMe. Um, then looking at what you would, I guess, call the foot soldiers of the SJW movement, the random girls you find on the internet that are like, we need socialism to smash the patriarchy and equality for everyone. And those people, I would say that a statistically disparate portion of even the foot soldiers belong to a Jewish demographic, especially as compared to other political movements in America especially compared to their representation in the general population. Okay. So the argument that I would hear against that would be that, and you probably heard this, that Jews have a higher IQ than Ashkenazi Jews have a higher IQ than pretty much any other group in the world, right? Um, and they are essentially at the forefront um, of every intellectual movement. Um, so 
it makes sense that even though they are a smaller portion of the population, um, they are they seem to be overrepresenting all of these intellectual movements, especially at the higher end of it. For sure. Um, I, I definitely don't want to look like I'm ignoring certain relevant details. And that's absolutely true that generally speaking, if you look in academia writ large, there are going to be a lot more uh, Jews than you will find in, say, um, menial labor work. And I think that is a feature of IQ above everything else. Um Again, going to evolutionary selective pressures, looking at the selective pressures in Europe for at least a thousand years, if not longer, kind of forced a certain high IQ, very low time preference um, disposition in this demographic. They were viewed as outsiders in Europe for most of European history, um, which results in insularity, in-group preference, et cetera, as well. Um, However, in even the academic fields, you will find far more Jews in Marxism than you will in just about any other uh, academic demographic, except for possibly, of all things, Austrian economics, Um, (laughs) which I think is explicitly a feature of IQ, right? Austrian economics requires a lot of conceptual reasoning and requires the ability to follow logical chains that are several thousands of steps in a row to get from the action axiom to everything else, as opposed to a more broader scope, more conceptual, uh, more intuitive field than, say, uh, biology or chemistry, where I have the periodic table of elements. I know the way these elements interact. I can do chemicals. Even organic chem is simple as compared to really involved Austrian economics, right? I'd say that um, Rothbard or Mises or uh, Hoppe would have to be able to work in a higher IQ uh, function than, say, the guy developing drugs for Pfizer Corp. Um, <laughs> so given that, I don't think it's any surprise that there are a lot of Jews in the Austrian school. However, if you look at the number of Jews that are in the Austrian school as opposed to the number of Marxist Jews, you will find, again, a very huge divide uh, statistically as far as representation goes. And I think that speaks more to a um, ethnic disposition than just the IQ explanation in general. There's a lot of variables. Biology is very fuzzy. Sociology is even more fuzzy than biology. But I, I do think that controlling for variables does suss out these distinctions. And so I would say that for every Rothbard, you have enough Marxists to say, well, not all X are like that. Rothbard is a statistical outlier for a demographic disposition. Okay. And the only other thing that you said before that I just maybe want you to clarify, um, you said that this is uh, within the SJWs and I guess uh, within the the Jewish cultural Marxists, did you say they have an outgroup preference? Um, that's, that's the interesting thing. So, I mean, the stereotype of a Jewish family is, you know, the Jewish father, the Jewish mother, and they want you to marry within the tribe. We, we all need to make, you know, you're going to find yourself a nice Jewish man and you're going to settle down and give us Jewish babies and they're all going to be circumcised. Like that's, that's the trope. Everybody's aware of it. And I think by and large, that disposition is true. Um, especially within the religious 
portion of the Jewish community. Again, dividing the religion from the ethnicity, but there is a lot of overlap between the two. However, at, at the same time that there is a strong in-group preference, there is a strong professed out-group preference. What I mean by this is, um, actually, how, are either of you familiar with uh, Brian Sovereign of Sovereign Tech fame? He's nope. He used to be a big name in cryptocurrency, and then he kind of got sour on cryptocurrency and now just focuses on technology and culture for the most part. Um, but in left libertarian circles, he's a really big name, and I used to follow him for a very long time. Recently, I just got disgusted with him and kind of washed my hands of the mess. However, he is very Jewish and very proud of it. Um, and as a case study, he lives a very, very conservative lifestyle. He has one monogamous female relationship, live-in girlfriend that they're never going to get married because marriage is evil, but they're, they're effectively married. Um, they don't do drugs. They, they like ca caffeine is the worst thing I'll ever imbibe, blah, blah, blah. However, every bit of material produced on his show, every bit of social engagement that he has is talking about how orgies are awesome, marriage is evil, do all the drugs you want, just don't wave your guns around while you're doing your drugs. Like Porkfest is the coolest thing that ever happened. Everybody in the world needs to go to Porkfest and douche rooms and just love and peace and anarchy, everybody. Like orgies for everyone. So there's, there's a disparity between the lived lifestyle and the professed political ideology. And this is pretty consistent looking at even Marx, for example. He was a Puritan in his disposition. Karl Marx was a very conservative, puritanical individual who wanted everybody to be virtuous, uh, laborious individuals that lived this very ascetic lifestyle for the sake of virtue. But at the same time, we need to have a violent, bloody revolution, and we need to have a community of women where everybody shares and shares alike, and nobody knows who's, who's <laughs> daddy, etc. And we need to basically subjugate the entire world to Marxism, thereby inviting everybody from outside the country into the country, and at the same time, exporting everybody from the country to the rest of the world, mixing and matching everybody to make one homogenous whole. So it's, it's interesting the the... Um, sharp distinction between that lived lifestyle and professed lifestyle. You know, open borders for everybody except Israel is another kind of meme that does apply that kind of expresses this disparity, right? Israel is a fascist dictatorship, a very ethnocentric fascist dictatorship, but everybody else in the world that we fund and manipulate in politics and everybody uh, or in everywhere um, have to have open borders and more freewheeling, free love, interbellum Germany, Bolshevik style lifestyles. Yeah. Um, I have no problem with that kind of characterization. I would say that extends just to most upper class liberals in general. Most white liberals have that same kind of thing where they, they live themselves extremely conservative lifestyles. They generally don't get divorced at high rates, but then they, of course, they, um, they seem to have a lot of support um, of of these lifestyles that would be more hedonistic, yeah, you know. I, yeah. I, but you might and say, yeah, it, it, right? Not not many of them are getting abortions, but they all say that we should have it. <laughs> yeah, <and laughs> that's I, a good point. I hadn't thought of that. I imagine you might say that, yeah. But within white liberals, the Jews are a bigger percentage of that than they would be. And so, I mean, I, I get that. And um, I don't know. I, I guess. My main question about all this is like, let's just 
let's just say, let's concede. Okay, maybe maybe everything you're saying is totally true, right? So okay. where where the the thing that I don't get, um, especially with like I said earlier, all of these kind of uh, big divisions within this broad alt right tent. Where do you go from there? What's what is the conclusion that you're trying to draw? And you know, again, what is the is this is it just the in group preference that keeps you together? Like where, where what's what's the implications of it all to you? That's that's my favorite question to discuss. Um, the end product of philosophy is ethics, right? Philosophy is this is the way the world works, and the important part, the turnaround, the final punchline is so. What do we do about it? right? How do I live my life in a way that I feel fulfilled, right? Some people, I, I won't get into philosophy too much. Um, but yeah, so the end, end product is the ethical question. What do we do? Where do we go from here? Within the realm of the alt-right, I think the general disposition is the house is on fire, right? <laughs> um, a, a meme that may or may not be true, and we don't have to discuss it right now, but it is relevant to this piece of the discussion is the meme of white genocide, right? The idea that we're a targeted demographic and everybody in the world is teaming up against us. The taxes are too damn high and everybody's moving in and taking our gerbs. You know, there's, there's a lot of angst and a lot of uh, fury right now in the alt-right. Whether it's justified or not is up to debate. However, because the house is on fire, because we're a targeted demographic, because everyone and their mother is against us. I actually just recently got doxxed. Some guy out in Florida got mad at me on Facebook and hunted down all the most inflammatory things he could find on my internet presence and sent them to my boss and was like, you have to fire this guy because he's evil and blah, blah, blah. And it led to a very stressful few weeks. Um, because of that, it lends to this disposition of if the house is on fire, you don't start by discussing which room to put the fire out in first. You don't start by um, focusing on, um, you know, oh, we'll start at the top and work our way down. And, you know, there's kind of two strategies. You can either run for the hills or you can just start putting out fires wherever you find them, right? You get the fire hose and you just go to town, right? Start at the foundation, work your way up. Doesn't matter. Just put out the fire. Then once the fire is starting to go down and things are kind of settled down, we can kind of come up with a strategy for cleaning up the mess. Once the fire is totally put out, then we can talk about, do we scrape the house down to the foundation and rebuild it? Do we build it this way? Do we build it that way? Do we go our separate ways now that the fire's put out? We'll build two smaller houses right next to each other on this lot, right? So as a metaphor, this kind of extends pretty far. But the idea is um, similar to the anarchist-minarchist debate, right? Um, in anarchist circles, you talk about, well, how useful are the minarchists? And some people say, and this again is kind of the autistic ANCAP position, well, they want a state. So even if their state is so small that you can drown it in the bathtub, that, you know, I don't want to have anything to do with them because they still want to charge taxes for a military or something. The more politically expedient ANCAPs will say, well, if they want to get the government as small as, you know, you can drown it in the bathtub then I'll help them out and then I'll drown it in the bathtub. And so that's kind of the position that we're in in the alt-right where a lot of us don't even agree on economics. Like I said, in the big tent alt-right, we have national socialists. We have legitimate like prison neo-Nazis. We also have people that are very strictly anarcho-capitalist, libertarian, Austrian school type guys. I would argue that Jared Howe lands in this category of a very strict Austro-libertarian 
um, kind of position within the alt-right. Um, I'd argue that I myself land in that category, but Jared and I sometimes are at odds and we have some pretty heated discussions about what to do. However, so the discussion then is how do we put out the fire? The easy answer, the most politically expedient answer, the one that I think will result in the least amount of death and destruction and bloodshed and whatever, and will get results the quickest would be the ethno-nationalist answer. You, you break up everybody into their own individual demographics. Then within those big tents, you break them up into smaller and smaller demographics until everyone's happy. This just so happens to parallel the general libertarian consensus on how to get rid of the state. General libertarian consensus is secession all the way down to the individual. I would draw the line of secession down to a family unit, a small tribe, you know, my parents, my grandparents, maybe my great grandparents. And that would be my tribe, not necessarily a state. It's not like we all have to listen to great grandpa and do everything he says, but that gives us a cultural basis on which to begin making those more ethical deliberations as far as where do we want to live? Who do we want to do business with? Who do we trust? Who's going to marry my son? Who's going to marry my daughter? These are questions that we can engage in within Dunbar's number, not in these huge multi-ethnic 2,000, 4,000, 5,000 mile wide countries that are run by states that have hyper-inclusive mass democracy. So that's kind of, we got to put out the fires. Once the fires are put out, then we can argue about whether we should have socialism or capitalism. And my solution is, well, socialists go over there, capitalists go over there, and time will tell. <laughs> <laughs> time will tell. Well, so we're probably getting close to, to the time that I like to spend on these sorts of things. So let's uh, everybody ha have uh, one, one more closing comment that they can make, and I'll start off. Um, you know, we, we didn't get super controversial and I think that was, you know, deliberate in that none of us want to be the target of the, of the ire of, of the internet warriors who, who somehow, you know, th this has probably got an audience of two, 200, 300 people at most, but somehow they get a hold of it. And then far and wide, we're all, we're all racist, even Tony, Tony, just for appearing here. So, you know, we're, we're trying to avoid that, but I, I think that this is an important issue and, and I'll leave my thoughts on this, which is from my own personal life, which is that one of my close friends has, um, taken a very hard, uh, white supremacist turn. And, you know, I never would have expected it from him because he's a really cosmopolitan guy, but I think that it is, as Joey says, putting the fire out, you know, when he sees his way of life under attack and he sees that the people that are practicing his way of life are all white and the people that are attacking it are all non-white and or, you know, have representatives who are representing a, a multicultural diversity type argument, you know, like white, white liberal SJW types, you know, then it's natural for him to join in to these types of activities that I think anybody in a, in a in, in a personal situation with someone is going to find abhorrent, you know, you, you know, questioning people's ancestry and and all of this, you know, things that you would say if you're really angry with someone or you really want to hurt somebody, you know. And so my closing thought is that this is something that we need to get to the bottom of. 
and we need to figure out what what is the impetus behind these movements and how can we answer it? And I think this uh, house on fire analogy is a good way to to kind of look at it. Uh, who who wants to finish off next? Preference. I guess I can go next, and then if Tony thinks I go out of line, he can correct me in his final. He, he can have the last word. Sounds yeah. good. So I, I definitely want to echo your sentiment, right? In the words of Jordan Peterson, um, you know what you call people you can't talk to, enemies. And if we want to divide our country into armed camps of enmity, all we have to do is keep doing what we're doing, right? And we can already see this. The events in Charlottesville, which we didn't even explicitly get into, are a perfect example of that. A few years ago, you wouldn't have seen a bunch of angry white guys walking around in their white polo shirts with torches screaming, you will not replace us, and Vice wouldn't have done a documentary on them, and Chris Cantwell wouldn't have hundreds of thousands of viewers the world over from prison. Um, That just wouldn't have happened. The last time something like that would have happened would have been back in the 1960s during the civil rights movement. Again, when there was a certain demographic that wasn't allowed to speak, a certain demographic that wasn't allowed to have a conversation. And you end up with Malcolm X and the Black Panthers and people burning down liquor stores and killing and raping people. And Martin Luther King then looks like a good guy compared to them, right? So in the same way, if I push the Overton window, if my people, if you will, push the Overton window far enough right, and we're allowed to have these conversations again, then the people walking around with tiki torches and hurting people and whatever, they'll look like the bad guys. And Tom Woods, Stefan Molyneux, Jordan Peterson, they're going to be the good guys. They're going to be the people that can have a conciliatory tone and we can put society back together in a way that's conducive to human flourishing. So kind of the whole thing, the whole exercise for me from the start to the end has been, I want to make the world a better place for me and for my children. And I think that this conversation is something that has to happen before we're forced into a situation where we have right-wing death squads and trains going to work camps and all the horrible things we've seen before in history, one way or another, whether it's white people going to the concentration camps or Native Americans going to the concentration camps, doesn't matter. Whoever it is shouldn't be going to concentration camps as long as they can play nice with their neighbors. And that's what I'm trying to promote here. Uh, yeah, I agree with that uh, 100%. And I also agree that the conversation does have to happen. As far as my final thoughts on the conversation, I tend to feel that, you know, sunshine is the best sanitizer and bad ideas shine a light on them. And, you know, they will be seen by everyone. I think um, places like Twitter and YouTube who are throwing your guys out, right? I think they're making a big mistake. They're basically virtue signaling and they're they're trying to keep people from seeing different ideas. And what that ends up doing is all you guys are now on Gab, for example, right? Mm-hmm. So now Gab is this big community where everyone is throwing out racial epithets and like, you know, whatever it is. I, I'm not on there too much. I've seen some of it, but <laughs> the point is that, you know, it makes you guys feel, I, I think number one, it probably gives you guys some some sense that, oh, we're, we're really big movement here, right? And I'm not disputing whether you are or not. I'm just saying, I think nobody else sees that now. It's just the people on Gab who see it. And I think Twitter is doing the world a disservice by hiding this from everyone else. Because if it's a bad idea, which I think a lot of it is is probably really bad ideas, then um, you know people should see it and people should be able to argue against it. I think we share the same views on economics, the same basic libertarian views. 
And what I would say to you, uh, without us having gotten into this conversation too much, and I, I think maybe we could do it again sometime because it is an interesting thing to explore, is that I don't think I, I like if it was me, I would rather be concentrated on the libertarian end than the ethno end. My personal opinion, because I think most bad ideas have come out of Europe. And most good ideas have come out of Europe, just because that's kind of just the way civilization has come about. Europeans just happen to be ahead in a lot of things. So you look at Europe right now, and you have this crazy um, left-wing stuff going on. And a lot of it was before the immigration stuff. I mean, you had communism in Europe, and that was more about class than it was about race and it, than it was about um, ethnicity. So I think regardless of of um of ethnicity you're going to have these pretty terrible ideas and I, I would say it's a mistake to stake your claim in like the white territory because let's just say you put you bur- you, you you put out the fire right and you get your white ethno state in in some peaceful fashion hopefully there's going to just be a lot of people there that are probably not very productive probably um are going to be wanting to plunder from the productive people. So the people, all the national socialists who who are, um, you know, the Richard Spencerites of the world, they're going to turn on you, you know? So I don't think it's necessarily um, a good idea to to stake that claim because, you know, ultimately the plunderers are going to plunder. And I don't care if they're white, or if they're black, it doesn't matter to me. Like the plunderers are going to plunder and that's why I don't think I would go down that road just because I I don't want to be plundered. I want to stake my flag in the yeah, individualism and human liberty. And if it happens to be that most of those people on my side are white, fine. But I'm not going to exclude anyone from from that idea just because of uh, you know, the genetics that they didn't choose, they were born into. You know, if they if they agree with me on that, then yeah, let's hang out. That's kind of where I'm at. That's a very Hoppian position, and I, I uh, appreciate that greatly. I would love to do a follow-up session. Well, I guess we'll just have to see. Uh, I want to thank Joey and Tony for taking the time and having this hard conversation. You know, if, if this goes over well and we, and we don't get too, too much pushback, I would like to talk more about it because I think that if there's progress to be made, this is the way that it can happen. You know, without – I mean, I think – we all, all three of us probably have uh, a slightly different viewpoints on a lot of these things. And so just talking it out and getting our ideas out there is really helpful. So thanks so much, guys, for being here. Thank you to the listeners. We really appreciate you. And um, I guess we'll just see you all next time. All right. Thanks. Awesome. All right, people, I hope you enjoyed. And as I said earlier, if you have any comments, please leave them. We'd be very happy to hear your thoughts on this one. Show notes are going to be at don'twasteyourhate.com slash 40. Peace.
In the early days of the internet, radical libertarians were scattered, lonely, and faceless. Without direction, they resigned to scour the web, sifting through content providers in a wasteland plagued by YouTube demonetization, Facebook jail, and covert internet censorship. But then, in 2017, the Libertarian Union was formed. Finally, the average Joe Libertarian could find a thriving community of independent podcasters and content providers, all in one convenient location. At Libertarian Union, we'll always have the latest news, interviews, discussions, and even movie reviews. With hundreds of episodes and more added all the time, you'll always find something fresh at libertarianunion.com.